The fullness of time. I couldn't think of a great song. Uh, on the way over here, I was uh, telling uh, Mark what I was going to be preaching on. If he thought of a song, I don't know if I asked him that, but he volunteered. Uh, time is filled us with transition. And I don't know if you communicated that to Corey or not, but uh, that is a good uh, a good song to go with this and also In Your Time. That was uh, a beautiful song also. We'll go right along with the with the lesson. I believe this uh, is a good point in our study, having talked about an overview of the Bible and and uh, some of the other things that I've, I've mentioned. I try to emphasize... The overall picture, whenever I, whenever I preach, whenever I can get it in and fit the topic, the overall picture of the fulfillment of God's Word and how everything works together. And as I mentioned Sunday morning, I think one or two other, uh, one or two evenings, I have pointed out Genesis 3.15 is the thesis sentence of the Bible. The entire Bible is written to explain God's providence in bringing about the promise in that prophecy uh, when God made that statement to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And that's what it's all about. It's all about the culmination of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise. And certainly... Satan did bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus bruised the head of the serpent, and he did so in the fullness of time. Now, in Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, Mark wrote, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The Jews had been waiting for centuries as a body of people for the fullness of time. God hinted, gave them several hints throughout the ages through various prophets about the fullness of time, things that would occur either just prior to or at uh, the fullness of time. Many of these they simply, they simply miss. And we're going to kind of hit some of the high points, I believe, tonight. We're not going to mention all the things that could be mentioned. But we are going to mention uh, some of those things. The fact that all the Jews had descended from Abraham did not make them heirs of the promise of salvation. As we've talked uh, from time to time, uh, the seed that God promised to bless, according to Galatians chapter 3, were all of those who would choose to be in Christ Jesus. And so the Jews as a physical nation, geopolitical Israel, certainly the modern state of Israel, has never been a, an object of God's promise to, to bless people or to bless them unconditionally. All men will be blessed spiritually in Christ Jesus. The inheritance under consideration when we see passages about the inheritance could only be realized in Christ. Heirs would not inherit until a set 
time in the future. Paul mentions this in Galatians chapter 5, that heirs are uh, sometimes something is held in trust until a point in a child a child's uh, future that he might be qualified to receive it. And so sometimes a man will leave his fortune to his children, but say they can't receive it until they reach the age of 21. Sometimes they can't receive it until they've gotten married. They may have other conditions uh, set down. And so the money, once the person dies, is held in trust by an executor. And uh, if that executor is faithful to the trust that the uh, deceased placed in him, then uh, at the appropriate time, he's, he will see to it that the heirs receive what was, what was promised. And so whenever they meet those conditions, that is the fullness of time. So we're going to look at several things this evening that are involved in the fullness of time. First of all, we consider the royal tribe. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, here in chapter 49 of Genesis, Jacob is inspired to give the future and fortunes of his 12 sons and the nation or the tribes that would rise from them. And in verse 10, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be shall the, be the obedience of the peoples. And so Jacob here, by prophecy, God speaking through him, made Judah the royal tribe. Now, when, when the people wanted a king, God did not give them a king from the tribe of Judah. He gave them Saul, the son of Kish, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. I believe the reason he gave them Saul is he, Saul met the... Uh, he was the ideal king from their point of view. But God wanted them to see that if they had the kind of king they wanted, that would not really turn out to be for their, for their good. And Saul was a miserable failure. And God took the kingdom from him and gave it to David, who was from the tribe of Judah. And so not only is the tribe of Judah the royal tribe, but David's house is the royal house. Second Samuel 7 verse 12, Samuel said to David, when your days are fulfilled, that can't be Second Samuel because Samuel wasn't alive. So uh, I, I messed up on that one, but we'll get that straight before the day's over. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And so the, the seed of the woman would be the seed of Abraham. Later we see, we didn't notice that, but he would also be the seed of Isaac, and Isaac shall your seed be called. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was eliminated, and Jacob received the promise. Jacob had 12 sons, but Judah was the one who would be the royal tribe. And so, or the royal house, uh, he'd be the royal tribe and David would be the royal house. Now in the book of Daniel, in chapter two, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. I'm confident that God gave him this dream. 
In this dream, he had a vision of a great image as depicted here, a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, and iron mixed with miry clay. Now, the first kingdom is identified by Daniel as Babylon. It existed from around 626 B.C. to uh, 600 B.C. It was followed by the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 B.C. to around 330 B.C. And then that was followed by the Grecian kingdom, sometimes referred to as the Macedonian kingdom. And it lasted from 300 B.C. to around 63 B.C. And then we have Rome, uh, which uh, I think has got zero B.C. there. That, that doesn't make sense. So I'm not sure what they mean by that. By that, uh, it has to be one B.C. There's no zero B.C. Uh, that's an oversight on my part to not correct that. But uh, to around around 100 A.D. Now that's. Uh, not the end of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire didn't uh, last uh, or lasted much longer than that. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But in in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has four uh, four visions, and each of these four kingdoms are identified. First, the uh, king of Babylon, kingdom of Babylon by the bear, the Medo-Persian kingdom, uh, or I'm sorry, the Babylon by the lion, the Medo-Persian by the bear, the Greece, Greece by the leopard, and Rome represented by a terrible beast, which had characteristics of all the others. In Daniel chapter 8, another vision identifies two of these. At this time, Babylon has already fallen and has already been replaced by the Medes and the Persians. And here the Medo-Persian kingdom is uh, figuratively referred to as a ram, and the Grecian kingdom is referred to as a, as a goat. Now, in the book of Daniel, the first three of those kingdoms are named. He told, he told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And later it was revealed to Daniel that uh, the Medes and the Persians, and we'll talk about that in a moment, would replace that Babylon, and the Grecian would replace the, the Medo-Persian. Again, the kingdom of Rome is never, is never mentioned uh, specifically, but we'll see how it figures in in a moment. Now in Daniel chapter 2, after relating to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, so he knew what, the, he, knew what he dreamed, and then he gave the interpretation of it. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. As far as the eye could see, Babylon, especially as represented by Nebuchadnezzar here as the king at that time, was over this entire realm. And he was in charge of it all. He was absolute monarch. 
But he was not a good man. And God took him down several pegs, made him like an animal, a brute beast. He ate grass like a donkey until such time as he recognized that there is one true and living God. And when he did that, God restored his, his mind unto him. But again, they, uh, Daniel says, you are the head of gold. And so Babylon is represented by the head of gold in this vision. In verses 38 through 40, another kingdom inferior to you, just as, uh, just as silver is inferior to gold, this second kingdom would be inferior to Babylon, and so on and so forth. And so another kingdom shall arise after you, uh, inferior to you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Bronze is uh, less valuable, less precious than gold or silver because there's so much more of it. And so there wasn't a whole lot of gold, not in contrast to these other, other metals, minerals, elements. And so there was less and less precious, but they were stronger. Gold is not all that strong. You won't see a ring that is solid gold generally. Uh, wedding rings, wedding bands, etc., that are gold are really gold alloys because gold itself would be too malleable to retain its shape. And so it's not all that strong, though it is precious. Silver is stronger metal, though it is less precious. Bronze is stronger than silver, though again less precious. And so uh, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, the strongest of these metals, but the least precious because there's so much of it. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So each of these kingdoms fell in succession. Uh, each one left remnants. Uh, and and this, the successor was built on top of those remnants. But Rome crushed the remnants and was a completely new kingdom. In verses 41 and 42, And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, the Roman Empire. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So Daniel spends more time on the kingdom of iron because it was going to be the kingdom in power at the fullness of time. And so he goes on and says in verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will be mixed with, uh, with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Now the Medes and the Persians were two nations that merged together to form the kingdom that overtook Babylon. Grecians, the Grecian kingdom was a, a solid kingdom, a united kingdom from the very beginning. Rome would be basically a coalition of kingdoms, but these kingdoms were so varied, so different that they could not hold together. 
Now, they did last fairly long, but eventually this mixing of these kingdoms, these mixing of the peoples would break them apart. In verses 44 and the first half of verse 45, and the, the days of those kings, the kings of this fourth Roman empire, fourth empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And so the Babylonian kingdom, to some extent, existed in part within the Medes and the Persians, and the Medo-Persian kingdom existed to some extent within the Grecian kingdom, but these did not exist within the Roman kingdom. And so it was, uh, it destroyed these others. But the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom of God. This kingdom had previously been mentioned by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, and uh, also Micah mentioned it and some of the other uh, prophets, of course, but Daniel probably spends more time on it than these other prophets. And then he says in verse 45, Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And so that's just part of the dream. A stone cut out of the mountain without hands demonstrates or illustrates the providence of God in bringing about the end, the final end of all of these kingdoms, all of these world, worldwide kingdoms, universal kingdoms would be brought to an end and there has not been another like any of them. And so certainly there's the British Empire, but it was never what Rome was. No other kingdom or empire has been. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. You're the, you're the head of gold, and, but there's going to be a successor to you. Your kingdom won't last forever. The kingdom that replaces yours, it won't last forever. The kingdom that replaces that one will not last forever. And the kingdom that replaces that one will not last forever. But the kingdom God would set up would indeed last forever. Now in chapter 5 of Daniel we see the introduction of the Medo-Persian Empire. Here we have the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, reigning over Babylon. And he was a proud man. He saw the handwriting on the wall. He was the first person ever to see the handwriting on the wall. And, you know, sometimes we can see the handwriting on the wall if we look close enough and are observant of our surroundings and uh, observant of people. We can... You know, we can pretty much tell what's going to happen to some extent. But Belshazzar was the first one to see the handwriting on the wall, and he saw a literal hand without being attached to an arm materialize and wrote on the wall, but he could not read the writing. And so Daniel tells him, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, 
God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And so the handwriting of the wall was meaning, meaning, tekel, eupharsin. Eupharsin being a form of the verb perez. And so here was the message. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. It's not going to last much longer. And brought it to an end. Prophetically, it already happened. It had not actually happened in reality. But it was as good as done, as we shall see. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. They were not what God wanted them to be. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that very night, when Belshazzar and those uh, with him were together, they had a drunken feast, and while they were feasting, the Medes and the Persians came in and took over the kingdom. And so the Medes and the Persians replaced the Babylonian kingdom. Then we have the kingdom of Greece. In Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, Daniel writes, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, the Median king, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now keep in mind that Cyrus, the, the, the Persian, and Darius the Mede were friendly to Israel. And they were the ones to let Israel return to the promised land. Cyrus in particular, named by Isaiah some 70 years previous to this, as being the one God would use to bring the people back after the 70-year captivity that Jeremiah had mentioned. And so Daniel said, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, there are three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And so the, uh, the Persian king was going to start a fight, pick a fight with the uh, leader of the uh, Macedonians or Grecians, who was Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great was the son of Philip of Macedonia. Alexander the Great, by the way, was educated by Aristotle, who was educated by Plato, who was educated by uh, Socrates. And, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about these in a moment. So Alexander was, was a very educated man. When he was about 32 years old, just, just shy of his 33rd birthday, he had conquered everything that he knew about. And legend has it that he sat down and cried because there were no worlds left to conquer. When you get to the top, there's no place to go but down. He wasn't anticipating going down. He thought he was going to stay on top. But he didn't stay on top very long. In chapter 11 of Daniel, verses 3 and 4, Then a mighty king shall arise, I believe he's talking about Alexander, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not to his children and grandchildren, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, 
for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, the kingdom that replaces the Grecian kingdom is never identified in the book of Daniel. But history tells us that when, uh, when Greece fell apart, it was divided into four parts, and uh, these four parts could not sustain their, each one his part. If they had banded together and continued to be a united kingdom, they might have lasted longer. But they broke it up. Each one wanted to be number one. And so each one took territory, and he was with number one on that territory. And then, of course, Rome. We know by Luke 2 and verse 1 and several other passages that Rome was the next kingdom to exist. Luke 2, verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, some translations say tax, but this was probably the purpose of the registration. You can't very well tax people until you register them. You've got to find out who the people are. This is why we have a census every 10 years in the United States. So they know who, who, they, can, uh, who they can tax, who they need to tax. And so registration and taxation go hand in hand. And so Caesar Augustus uh, made a decree that all the world, that is the Roman world, should be registered. Now I want to look at the contributions of each of these four kingdoms toward the fulfillment of time. Each of these four kingdoms provided something that helped to bring about the fullness of the time. Babylon scattered the Jews throughout the territory that had once belonged to Assyria. Remember that after the divided kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel immediately went into idolatry and never looked back, never had a good king, never had any kind of religious reform. They instituted idolatry. They fired all the priests, the Levitical and Aaronic priests, sent them packing back to Jerusalem or Judea and established their own. uh, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, established his own priesthood, set up his own feast days and, uh, and places that he wanted people to worship so that they wouldn't want to go back down to Jerusalem uh, three times a year like God wanted them to. Now, God had sent a prophet to Jeroboam and said, if you keep my commandments and obey my covenant, I'll bless your house. Nebuchadnezzar did not, or Jeroboam, son of Nebat, did not do that. And so his dynasty was not long-lived. His dynasty did not survive long. And so I'm not sure how many of his descendants actually reigned, maybe just two or three. But they scattered the Jews throughout the territory that had once belonged to Assyria. Now, again, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king. The kingdom of Judah had some good kings, some bad kings. A bad king would uh, plunge the nation into idolatry. A good king, and he, he would have some reforms. He would try to reform things. He would try to do away. With the, with the idolatrous worship. Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, 
Hezekiah was one of the good kings, but his son Manasseh was probably the worst of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it was during the kingdom or reign of Manasseh that God declared that he's going to send them into captivity to punish them for their sins. He could not be true to his word and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah like he could the northern kingdom of Israel. And the reason he could not do that is because God had already established that the tribe of Judah would be the messianic tribe. So the tribe of Judah had to survive, but they needed to be punished. And so after Babylon defeated Assyria, God used Babylon to take the children of Israel into captivity for 70 years. And so they scattered the Jews throughout the territory that had once belonged to Assyria and would eventually belong to Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Many of these Jews never returned to the land of Israel. These Jews had great, these, the ones that did not return had great influence on the Gentile neighbors. At some point, they began to build synagogues to facilitate the worship of God since they were so far removed from Jerusalem. And this is why in Acts chapter 2, on the first day of Pentecost, following the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, you've got proselytes as well as Jews from every nation in the kingdom of Israel. Because you've got people out there, Gentiles, who had turned to the one true and living God. The males had submitted to physical circumcision. The males and females had adopted the, uh, the law of Moses as their law and the religion of the Jews as their religion, and worshiped and served God as if they had been born Jews. And so this was a result of the Jews scattered throughout there during the Babylonian kingdom who remained and built these synagogues and had this influence on, this, on these people. Now the Medes and the Persians allowed the, those who wished to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the temple and resume their worship according to the law of Moses. Esther and her older cousin Mordecai, who was like an uncle to her, were among those who, had, who stayed. Esther eventually became queen and used her royal position to save the Jews from the eradication plan by the evil Haman. You might remember... And if you don't, I'll refresh your memory. Haman was a, a general. He hated the Jews. In particular, he hated Mordecai. Now, the book of Esther is interesting because God, the, word, the name God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. There doesn't seem to be any overt miracles performed in the book of Esther. But you see God in, in, on every page providentially. And so Mordecai, he is minding his own business one day and he overhears a plot to kill the king. This is after Esther has become queen. And he tells somebody that he knows that is in the palace to tell Esther that this has happened and encourages Esther to tell the king about it. And so the, Esther communicates that to the king and the, uh, the collaborators in this intended assassination, they were captured and they were dealt with. And no more was thought about that until, until later. 
Mordecai was a godly man. Haman, again, was a haughty individual, very proud individual, arrogant, expected people to bow down to him, and many of the people did. Mordecai refused. Because Mordecai refused to bow down to him, Haman was so angry, he was going to kill not only Mordecai, but his entire race. And that included the ones who had already returned to Jerusalem. Mordecai found out about this, and he talks to Esther and says, hey, Look, you know, you've got to do something about this. You're queen. And she reminded Mordecai, well, yeah, but you can't just go in and see the king anytime you want to, even if you're queen. If you go in and he doesn't want to see you, he can kill you. And it doesn't matter if you're his queen. And Mordecai says, well, who, who, who knows but what you were coming to the kingdom for a time such as this. So Esther, with, I'm sure, some trepidation, quietly entered the throne room, awaited the extension of the king's scepter, which gave her permission to approach. And she approached and eventually communicated to him that Haman, who by this time was kneeling at the feet of Esther while the king was out of the room, beseeching her not to tell king about his plan. This is when Haman learned that Esther was a Jew. The king comes in and he thinks that Haman is propositioning Esther. And so he's, he's wroth. Now in the meantime, Haman was so angry at Mordecai, he built a gallows in his own house on which to hang Mordecai. Also in the meantime, I should have said this, that one night the king could not sleep and he asked for somebody to come and read to him the Chronicles. And uh, they did, and they got to the place where a man named Mordecai discovered a plot to kill the king. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Has Mordecai ever been rewarded? And they said, well, no, no, he hasn't. So the king, Ahasuerus, he goes to, Mordecai, uh, goes to Haman and says, what should I do if I want to honor somebody? And Haman thought, well, it can't be anybody he wants to honor more than me. And so he tells him to do to this fellow what he would want done to him. He said, you put him on one of your horses and you parade him in front of the, the people and let them uh, cheer him, let them applaud him. And the king said, well, okay, I want you to do that for, Haman, for Mordecai. As that made him hate Mordecai all the more. But eventually he was hanged on his own gallows when all was revealed to the king. A proclamation had already been made that this uh, attack could take place. Apparently they could not change that law by tradition. But another law was passed that allowed the Jews to defend themselves, to give them a heads up. This is going to happen. Don't let it take you unawares. Defend yourself. And so they were not eradicated thanks to the action of Esther. And so all this we learn from the book of Esther. 
And so God used the Medes and the, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the king, uh, king Ahasuerus and his new queen Esther, to accomplish his purposes. Had they been wiped out, God could not have fulfilled his purposes. Now, God could have done it some other way, but this is the way he did it. Preserved the Jews from extinction. What about Greece? Greece took both their language and the culture to the far reaches of the former Medo-Persian Empire. Greece took over. The Greek language was very well suited to be the language of the New Testament since everyone who was literate could read and write Greek. This made it very easy to communicate the gospel. Some one to two hundred years before Christ, 70 Hebrew scholars were chosen to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Koine Greek, the Greek of the common common man, not classical Greek, but common Greek, Koine as it's called. And so whenever the, the apostles quoted from the Old Testament scriptures, they pretty much quote from the Septuagint. And that simply means the 70. And so uh, this, again, was a result of the kingdom of Greece. If it hadn't been for Greece, it wouldn't have been translated into Grecian, into Greek. But everyone who was literate could read and write Greek. Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and I got them out of order. They're not even in backwards or reverse order. Helped educate and refine the minds of the people resulting in a greater willingness to accept the words of Jesus and the apostles. They were thinkers. They were better ready to think through the gospel than they might otherwise have been. And this was true of the Jews who had accepted the Grecian culture as well as the Jews in uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so we can see that Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece all contributed to the fulfillment of the fullness of times. Now, what about Rome? Rome established a greater peace than had before existed in previous empires, referred to as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Peace throughout the Roman Empire. This peace made travel to distant places within the empire safer. Because there was very little warfare and greater emphasis on crime prevention. So that made it safe for the apostles and other Christians of the first century to travel and take the gospel to other parts of the Roman Empire. The system of roads Rome built made travel easier. Rome built roads everywhere. I don't know if, if you kids have heard the expression. I heard it just about all my life. All, all roads lead to Rome. And basically, the reason that is, is that Rome built roads everywhere. And so in that, part of the, in that part of the country, wherever you are, you can take a road that's going to lead to Rome. And you've been in Rome, and you can go just about anywhere on a road at that particular time. Safe travel. Easy travel. And so that was all important to the furtherance of the gospel. The registration and taxation forced Joseph to return to Bethlehem. Joseph was from Bethlehem, but he had 
at some point moved to Nazareth. Now God through Micah, Micah 5.2, predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so there had to be, a, they had to be a getting Joseph back to Bethlehem so that when his espoused wife Mary gave birth, he would be born in Bethlehem. That was accomplished by the registration and taxation. Then the betrothal in Joseph and Mary. Here, at this particular point, during the fourth of these four kingdoms, we have a, a man who has of the utmost integrity, a man who is religious and righteous, who is upright, just, and fair, espoused to a woman who is also from the tribe of Judah, and both were descended from David, though through different sons. Joseph was descended from David through Solomon. Mary was descended from David through another son of David's, Nathan, whom I suspect was named after Nathan the prophet. That's the one that told David, you're the man, <laughs> uh, regarding the sin, sins of David with regard to Bathsheba. So in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So he was of the house of David. He was from the royal house. She also was from the house of David, but again through a different line of descent. So it's not like their first cousin. Uh, they are distant, distantly related, but both related, both descended from David. And so here you've got two people, a man and a young woman, a virgin, both of whom descended from David, the house of David, the tribe of Judah, alive at the same time, and they just happened to be espoused to one another. In Matthew one eighteen, Matthew writes, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and that means she had been promised in marriage. Now, betrothal was a stronger relationship than engagement that we, you know, we have, you know, you ask a woman to marry you or ask a man to marry you. And when that uh, request is granted, they are engaged. But there's no obligation to marry. But with the betrothal, there was an obligation to marry. And the only way you could get out of that marriage is for the other person to commit fornication. Now, when Mary is discovered by Joseph to be with child, you can imagine what he might think right off the bat. She's been unfaithful. He's going to put her away privately. But he found out that she was not unfaithful, but that she was being used by God to bring the Son of God into the world. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So there was no way that she could be expecting a child by him. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It was a miraculous conception 
in her womb. And so Jesus had no earthly father. He only had a heavenly father. Now, it can be said, certainly, that Joseph was his legal father because he was betrothed to Jesus' mother and eventually married her. I'm sure he was the foster father or adopted father, whichever of those terms you prefer. He helped raise Jesus. And again, he was so just that he was going to put Mary away privately. He didn't want to make her a public example. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and says, no, don't do that. She's not been unfaithful to you. She's being used by God. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes, In him that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so when Jesus, when Mary and and Joseph were betrothed, especially when she became with child by the Holy Spirit, the promise that God made to the serpent and by virtue of that promise since Adam and Eve were there to them also. God was about to bruise the head of the serpent and provide a means whereby mankind could be reconciled, made friends again with God. And so this is according to God's eternal purpose. In Galatians three twenty nine, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now again, Among the churches of Galatia, you had these Judaizing teachers who were trying to make of the uh, Gentile, of the Lord's church, trying to make the Lord's church nothing more than a Jewish sect by convincing the males to submit to physical circumcision and convincing all of them to submit to Moses and the law. And uh, at the end of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, he tells them to put put off, put out these people. They don't need to be with you. But heirs according to the promise, the promise made by God, not heirs according to the law. So God had made the promise before he gave the law, and the law did not obviate the promise. In verse chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything prospectively. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And so there has to be a fullness of time at which he will receive that inheritance. And then he goes on to say, in verses 3 through 5, In the same way we also, when we were children, we Jews, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, seed of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Under the law, they were children. They were heirs. 
But they were not sons. They had not inherited that which God wanted to give them. In order to inherit what God wanted to give them, they had to embrace Jesus. They had to enter into a right relationship with God by entering into a right relationship with Jesus. This, I believe, is what's under consideration in Romans chapter 6. Being baptized into Christ, you're baptized into a right relationship with Him and through Him with God. And so, that was what God intended all along. To bless us not through the law, to bless us through Jesus Christ and our faith in Him. But to appropriate the blessing, we have to manifest faith. We have to manifest an active, obedient faith. And we do that by submitting our will to the will of God as is revealed in the New Testament. If you need to make your heart right with God as an alien sinner, we'd encourage you to confess your faith in God, repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins. If you've done that, but you know you've not been living your life in accordance with God's will, you need to repent of that. Come back to God intending to live the life God wants you to live. We'd encourage you to do that while we stand and while we sing.